If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through. The parable of the mustard seed uh, is a famous one, and you probably have heard it before. And it's this basic idea of this small seed which grows into a big plant. Uh, but the reality, I hope, well, that we'll find is that there's much more to it than that. And I'm always reminded, uh, as I am in almost any way, of my favorite TV show, Seinfeld. I can relate all things back and through Seinfeld. In Seinfeld, one of the great realities of the show is that it's very simple. And so there's just a basic story. There's nothing complex. And yet, in this very simple story, it's always called a show about nothing, this very simple story, there's actually many storylines or plot lines that are happening all at the same time. So much so that later on, if you're a Seinfeld fan, sometimes maybe you'll go back and watch a show that you've been seen in a while, and you'll say to yourself, oh, I didn't realize all those things were in this one episode. So my point is to say that this very simple story about nothing, underneath it is all these unbelievable plot lines. I think the same thing is true of this parable. But if we just stop and say, oh, it's a small seed and it grows into a big tree, then then we'll miss the richness of everything else that's happening here. All the many plot lines that have actually made the episode so compelling in this case. So what is the parable of the mustard seed about? We should start at the very basic point. In fact, it is about something small becoming big. Jesus is very careful to say that this is about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And the mustard seed grows from a small seed to the largest garden plant. Now, many critics of uh, the biblical text have said, well, this is like not true. And so they've attacked the the accuracy of the Bible because uh, modern science proves that a mustard seed is not the smallest seed. And we all know that a mustard tree is not nearly as tall as a sequoia, right? Or even an oak or a cedar. Now, he does say here a garden plant, but in reality, there were garden plants that actually grew higher. But the point has never been the literal reality of an analogy that Jesus is telling. He's telling a story to help make his bigger point. That something so small could become something so complex and all-encompassing. That something so tiny could become so big. And so the imagery is what Jesus is after. He's not after the literalness of something that was the absolute smallest to the absolute biggest, right? But the imagery of tiny to complex, small to ever-growing, is absolutely at the center of what Jesus is trying to say in this parable of the mustard seed. So if we're to understand the kingdom of God, it grows from small to big. And this is the imagery of the kingdom of God, is it not? Not necessarily even that numerically it grows from small to big, that Jesus is the first and then there were 12 and then we look back and there are thousands upon thousands and millions and millions. 
But the imagery of how God grows his kingdom, I think, is the picture here. So think about it this way. The kingdom of God is at first glance improbable and at last glance undeniable. At first glance improbable and at last glance undeniable. What what at first was improbable now is completely undeniable. And so you have Jesus talking about the kingdom going up to people who have not walked their entire life and touching them, and they're walking. Improbable becomes undeniable. Remember, the Pharisees are going after this, to this person's mother and saying, who, who did this? Who made him walk? And they're saying to him, well, you go to ask him. He's the one who's walking now. I mean, trying to feel it's undeniable. It can't be denied that it has happened, but it was completely improbable. This is the kingdom of God. It's why the Bible talks about it being foolishness to those who don't believe, but at the core of our being for those of us who have come to embrace it. And it's why Jesus, when he comes as the embracer of this kingdom, does not come to be coronated on a stallion with a crown on his head, but the kingdom is instituted when an insurgent is crucified. The Romans crucified people not because they just didn't like them, not because they stole, not because they talked bad, but because they thought they were insurgents. Uh, They were leading rebellions, as it were. So even when you hear about Jesus being crucified and two thieves being on either side of him, thieves is a horrible translation. They were not thieves. They did not shoplift, right? We just watched Home Alone the other day in the cars we were driving, and Macaulay Culkin steals a toothbrush, right? That's not what's going on with these two people next to them. They were leading insurrections. They were leaders of groups that were rising up against the Roman presence in Israel. That's why people were crucified. Because they were living in opposition to it. And Jesus, though he's coming in this way, the Jews push him into this, this, uh, this scene in front of the Romans as, uh, as leading insurrection, and he's crucified that way. So you have the kingdom instituted by a crucified insurgent. Improbable. But the crucified insurgent becomes a resurrected Savior, undeniable. Jesus calls, as the people who will institute his kingdom, fishermen. Smelly, third shift fishermen. Sunday school dropouts. They, couldn't, they didn't have the theological chops to work in religious ways. They could never be pastors or teachers, or higher trade people. They had to go learn the trade of their dad, regular old Joes. Or tax collectors, who were by nature liars and thieves and took money off the top. And if the government said you owed 10%, they charged you 12% because they needed their 2%. And Jesus says, these will be my people. So fishermen and tax collectors, improbable, become church fathers. Undeniable. Matthew, who we're reading from, was a tax collector. And Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, was a fierce persecutor of the church, improbable, becomes a prolific apostle of the church, undeniable. And the church is completely persecuted in the first century, 
Christians are crucified. They're being burnt on the stake. And, and, and Roman emperors like Nero are fiercely opposing the move of the Christian religion and, and the followers of Jesus, even before it becomes an established religion, when it was even more pure. is being completely persecuted. Improbable that anything would come of this. But from a persecuted church becomes a missionary force. Undeniable. Undeniable. And then there's a young German boy who is always trying to live up to his father's expectations. And his father is harsh with him. And so totally pursuing what his father wants for him, he goes to law school and does everything he needs to do to become a lawyer. And then as he's returning home, uh, returning back to where he's taking classes from his home, he's found caught in an open field in the middle of a fierce thunderstorm. And as lightning is crashing all around him and rain is pouring down on him, as he's hiding behind a stone, but totally unprotected from the elements, he calls out to God sort of in this momentary whatever and says, I'll be a monk if you just save me. I'll, God, I'll do what you want if you just protect me. And as the storm ceases and his heart is still beating and he makes his way back to school, he begins over the next several years to make good on his promise to God. And a young lawyer named Martin Luther becomes a burgeoning monk who as he studies the Scripture for himself, this burgeoning monk who once was a lawyer totally setting up his life to please his father, improbable, becomes a catalytic reformer, undeniable. This is the move of the kingdom of God. And now as we look where the kingdom of God is moving most prolifically around the world, it's not in places like this, but it is in places where the church is underground, improbable, but millions are coming. The underground church, improbable, is becoming a multiplying reality and organism, undeniable. This is the kingdom of God. This is the parable of the mustard seed. It's not just that Jesus was one and now we have millions. It's that this is how God moves and advances his kingdom. This is how he works. This is who he is. And so why wouldn't he do it here? And why wouldn't he do it in the ordinariness of your life and mine? And why wouldn't he do it in this country and in this state and in this world and on these college campuses and in our families and other places? One of the questions, I think if you're honest, you'll admit that this is one of the questions you often ask. I'll be honest with you. It's one of the questions that I often ask. I think it's one of the questions that churches and Christians ask a lot. Is why isn't God acting? Why isn't he moving? Why isn't he doing something? Now we have in our minds, what we'd like him to accomplish, right? And so, in fact, he may well be moving, but he's not attending to the thing that I'm interested in him doing. So that's probably error number one in that way of thinking. But the reality is, while we ask this question, completely right next to it, our mind is, is completely filled with the reality, or our existence is completely filled with the reality that We give God no space to act. 
So we are a bunch of people who are demanding that God acts, and at the same moment are a bunch of people who are giving him no time, no space, no resource to act. And we're wondering why he doesn't act. If the parable of the mustard seed is a reality, if God is the one who takes improbable to do undeniable, if God is the one that takes ordinary to do extraordinary, if it's the smallest seed that becomes a burgeoning, the largest of all garden plants, then what is the reality for us? The reality isn't that God won't act. It's that we don't give him space to act. So what is the reality of your life? I mean, is our life filled with the standard conventions, the same old, same old, the way we've always done things, and yet we're wondering why God isn't interested in following our plan for our life and the world? Are we trying to start churches by the way that people have written formulas and books and curriculums? Are we trying to pastor churches, lead ministries, care for families because of the way that someone has... has written in a nice 12-chapter book? Are we on our knees creating all kinds of space for the one who will take the improbable and do the undeniable? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And that reality is our reality. Every morning when you wake up, or at lunchtime, if that's when your mind really starts to function, if you're like me. Maybe it'd be good just to ask yourself, just to say something like this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. My God takes the improbable and does the undeniable. How will I live this day? How will I order this day? Will I go about it in the standard conventions? I'm not telling you that you need to like have a whole new schedule to your day and create whole new other things to do. What I'm saying is God doesn't necessarily work because we created a great plan and then invite him to come do it with us. But he is always moving. And when we create space to listen and recognize the move of the Spirit and we get on the train that's already moving, that's where the improbable becomes the un. Deniable. And so, the imperative for us is to live lives that are attuned to this reality. That are given to this disposition. That really believe this, and so we make space for this. As we think about what it means to be a church plant as we think about what it means to be a growing church, as we think about what it means to reach out? Is it more about us creating plans and creating systems and creating all kinds of stuff and then saying, God, come do it? Or is it about us coming together and intentionally and urgently seeking God for the need around us? and creating space and time and flexibility to listen and to move and to experiment and to allow him to create from the improbable the undeniable. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It is completely God-enabled. Now, what I love about this 
is that this very next verse, and birds come into this again. If you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know that I have issues with birds, and I won't get into it. Uh, but here's birds again, right? Though it's the verse 32, though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants, becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now, at first glance, you read this and think, oh, that's nice, right? The reality is that mustard plants, trees, shrubs, however it is, they never really were suitable for birds to nest in. The branches weren't thick enough and strong enough to to hold the nesting. So God is saying something much different here. Jesus is implying something much different here than simply, oh, this is wonderful, it's grown so big and now birds can come nest in it. What he is saying is that this has grown even bigger than expected. Like the what, what God has accomplished here is beyond expectation, beyond the ordinary. This is not just a simple, wow, it was a small seed and now it's a big thing. No, it's, it's something that God has supernaturally enabled, so much so that birds have come and nested in it. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, completely divinely enabled. The second thing I want to say not only is the kingdom of God completely divinely enabled, the kingdom of God is meant to be a blessing to the world. It's meant to be a blessing to the world. So why does Jesus say that birds come to nest in this tree? This is an odd thing, right? So when stuff like this shows up, we should ask ourselves, well, wait a minute, why? Is he just adding an interesting little detail here? That birds will come and nest in this tree? It's sort of a nice picture. Unlikely. When these sorts of things are added and noted here, there's usually reason why they're added or noted. We read when we started our gathering this morning from Psalm 84, how lovely are your dwelling places, O God. I'd better for me to spend one day in your courts than a thousand somewhere else. I'd rather be the doorkeeper in your house than in the, the luxurious tents of the wicked. What else does it say in there? That in this glorious kingdom of God, even the sparrow finds food and the swallow is able to nest in its branches. That, that this provision and perfection and beauty and splendor of the kingdom of God is not simply for those who call themselves children of God, but for the blessing of the world. That even the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Uh, Psalm 104. You don't need to flip there. I'll read it for you. Another psalm that talks about uh, these sorts of things. Praise the Lord, my soul. The Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind, right? This big, glorious kingdom of God. He makes uh, winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He sets the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. and the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place that you assigned for them. You set a boundary they can't cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field, 
The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. In God's great kingdom that was this earth before sin was infused into it and and ultimately will be as God rules over the earth, even the birds of the air are great beneficiaries of the love and care of God. And might Jesus be implying by adding this little phrase to this parable, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that not only grows from small to big, but enables the nesting of the birds, that the people of God are therefore charged to take up this call of God to care for His world. And if you look all the way back to the very first chapter of the Bible, what does God say after He creates man? Go and have dominion over this world. And we think of dominion in our modern day world as you know, carrying an axe and a trap, and we can do whatever we want. This is our own. We're the highest created beings, and we're going to just rule over this place. But the picture of God in the Old Testament is God as a gardener. And so when he gives dominion to Adam and Eve over the world, he's charging them as gardeners, as co-gardeners over the world, that they would care for this place, that they would enable it to grow and flourish. And so it is for us that we are charged as people of God to care for the creation of the world. No, I'm not simply talking about investing in environmental causes, although I think that's a wonderful thing to do. But what I'm talking about is embodying the Abrahamic covenant. Because what does God say to Abraham when he makes his great covenant with him? Genesis 12. Abraham, you're going to come and I'm going to make from you a great nation. Your descendants are going to number as many as the stars in the sky. He finishes it by saying, and you will be a blessing to the world. So the Cliff Notes version of the Abrahamic covenant is, God is going to bless you abundantly, and you're going to turn around and bless others too. And how could it be any different for us thousands of years later as people of God, as growing branches and shoots of this mustard seed, as it were, but to be able to be strong enough that birds could come and nest. That God blesses us so that we can bless others. That we can actually care for the world around us and love and bless. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, completely divinely enabled, that it might be a blessing to others. And the last thing I want to say is that the kingdom of God is about infusion. It's about infusion. Here's what I mean. The kingdom of God, and we've, the last three weeks it's been the same thing. When Jesus chooses the, the, this parable, it's so interesting to me. Now, obviously, it lived in a heavily agrarian society where growing things was a huge part of most everyone's life. And so these parables made complete sense to everyone around them. They still make perfect sense to us. 
but I'm so compelled by this imagery of the kingdom of God as a seed. The kingdom of God is a seed which is planted and then for a while completely unseen. And as it's watered and gains its nutrients, begins to grow underneath and grow above. And ultimately, if cared for well, grows into this wonderful plant. Jesus here calls it a mustard seed. The kingdom of God comes as a seed. I mean, there's something completely improbable but undeniable about this, isn't there? Now, if you look through the entire Old Testament, you will find lots of references to birds making their nests in trees. I I did this this week. It's unbelievable how much birds making nests shows up in the Old Testament. It's why we know that when Jesus includes this, it wasn't just by chance. Almost always when it's showing up, if not in pictures of Psalms where God is talking about caring for his creation, the birds nest in giant trees, cedars or oaks, almost always. And the imagery is almost always about a great empire. So in Ezekiel 31, it's talking about Assyria. In Daniel 4, it's talking about Babylon. There's this imagery of this great tree. The branches span over and birds come and nest in it. And the idea is that this kingdom is kind of the one. And other people are either benefiting from it or coming underneath it. And Jesus, when he's making the imagery of the kingdom of God, he doesn't choose a cedar. And he doesn't choose an oak. He chooses a mustard plant. But birds are nesting there. And I can't help but be compelled to understand this as the fact that the kingdom of God comes as a seed, not as a conquering army. That the kingdom of God comes in humility, comes in infusion, and ultimately transforms all that it touches. But the conquering army comes by force and by coercion and by intimidation. The cedar and the oak are much more intimidating than the the shrub of mustard, right? One commentator called it a nuisance that could be yanked out and thrown away. The, the, the kingdom of God is propelled, propelled forward. The, the, the gospel is moved forward. The, the, the reality of Jesus is moved forward by infusion, not by force, not by intimidation, not by coercion that it's a seed that is planted in the ground and over time able to transform. And this, I think, is is why Jesus follows the parable with this parable of leaven, right? That there's the kingdom of God is like a woman who took leaven and folded it into 60 pounds of dough. It's a lot of dough. (laughs) And folds it in there and mixes it together. And eventually, uh, if you're reading the very little translation, eventually it's leavened. And so John Chrysostom, when he was commenting on this unbelievable quote, that, that the leaven, although it is buried, is not destroyed. But in time, as it permeates this lump of dough, it transmutes it to itself. And then he says, this is the gospel. That the gospel is so infused 
that as it is mixed, what once was dough is now leavened. It is not a bulldozer that comes in and clears the way and constructs something new. It's a renewing reality that takes something now and makes it what God intends it to be. And so it is for us. Gospel is like leaven in our hearts, always and completely working and mixing and over time leavening our heart. So that our heart is less about us and more infused with the gospel. Less about us and more about Christ. That over time, as we're continually encountering the realities of the gospel, that we become completely consumed with the realities of the gospel. And that as we look back at our life 20 years, what once was a lump of dough is now leavened. The kingdom of God is like a woman who takes leaven and hides it in dough. And not just our hearts, but our world. This is the way I'm convinced that Jesus has intended for his kingdom to be announced and proclaimed to our world by infusion, by being mixed in, by being sent into the middle of and stirred around. Not by being taken and held in a separate jar and every once in a while opening the jar and shouting out to the lump of dough out there, we're 11, if you need us, come and get us. But this is how the church orients itself. This world needs leaven. It's never going to rise. And we sit in a jar with a lid on us over on the shelf, and Jesus has never intended it to be that way. And so we always talk about the reality that, that the church exists much more Sunday afternoon to Saturday evening than it does for a few hours on Sunday morning because that's what Jesus has called you to be. We're just getting together this morning to remind each other of that reality. What we do here is way less important than who you are for the rest of your week. We pastors don't like to say that because we build up this Sunday thing, right? No. No. Don't ever let it be like that. That's about the church. And Jesus doesn't say, the church is like leaven. The church has stood in the way for far too long of the kingdom of God, quite frankly. And let's get behind and push the kingdom of God forward. The parable says the kingdom of God is like leaven that was hidden in 60 pounds of flour and over time. Now, if you've ever made bread, you know that it's been so long since I made bread, and when I did, it was in one of those big machines, you know, that shakes on the counter for several hours, and then it shuts up for six hours, and then it shakes again. And, uh, but you get that little tiny packet, you know, of leaven and just pour it in there at a certain time. It's a ball of dough, but it's not 60 pounds of it, right? How long do you think it takes to leaven 60 pounds of dough? And yet we decide sometimes that if things aren't working out as we intended them to be, well, that must not be it. And yet I wonder if God, as the bread maker, just wants to keep folding the dough and folding the dough 
and kneading the dough and mixing it together so that the leaven is spreading as far as it can and infusing the world with the gospel. Three quick things that I want to say. Maybe they're completely obvious. In the ESV uh, translation here, it says that the woman hid the, the leaven in the dough. Uh, in the New NIV, it says that she mixed it. The hid is probably the more literal translation. I like it here because it sort of gets at the seed imagery a little bit better. That it's sort of buried in there and at first glance is making like zero impact, right? But you come back hours later and you see the dough rising. It's the same thing with a seed. What must it have felt like for Jesus on a cross to look out and see his mom and one last disciple and know that the rest of them had run for shelter? It must have looked like in his human mind that this thing wasn't adding up to much, right? And yet, the seed is being firmly planted and the yeast was being firmly mixed. So it is for us. So the, the, the leaven is, 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 is hid in there. I think there's a distinct connotation here in that the way that the gospel goes forward, the way that Jesus is meant to be proclaimed to the world is not in a slash and burn reality, right? I love that the leaven is hid or mixed. The leaven doesn't come and smack the dough, Right? The leaven doesn't come and kick the dough. The leaven doesn't come and call the dough names. But it's hidden there and mixed. And yet, far too many Christians and followers of Jesus take the approach of making the gospel and the kingdom of God known by hurling accusations, by making scenes, by calling attention to themselves. I read in the newspaper um, this past week, and there's, there's all kinds of things going on in society. We, we are not a politically-minded church. Uh, we certainly have convictions about the reality of our world and about what the Bible teaches. But sometimes churches get so tied into politics that they lose the gospel for a particular political cause. I think it's it's a horrible danger that many churches have unfortunately fallen ill to. There's a story of, of a, a man who, a pastor, who went in, in protest of the Pennsylvania Attorney General, went and made a huge scene at the Capitol building and tried to sneak into an elevator and make it upstairs and was arrested and wouldn't go peacefully but went kicking and screaming and so was arrested for disorderly conduct and making all these bold claims. And I'm thinking to myself... The kingdom of God is like yeast that was hidden in 60 pounds of dough. This, what is wrong? The kingdom of God doesn't move forward by slashing and burning. I'm not saying we need to compromise our convictions, but how do we move this forward? By being present, not by being known. It's hid in. It's in. The call for the people of God, the call for the church, is to be firmly planted in our world. 
Leaven has no effect on dough unless it is in the dough. We cannot be people who call from the pan next to the pan where the dough is. We can't be people who call from a Sunday morning gathering to everyone who's not interested in a Sunday morning gathering. We can't be people who completely separate ourselves from the world and then every once in a while try to invite people to something that we do rather than going to what they do. That's the opposite of this parable. And so what is the call for the people of God? Too many Christians either, either overtly or subconsciously have this sort of connotation that says to hell with the world. Right? In figurative and literal ways. And nothing could be more antithetical and undeniably unbiblical and in opposition to the heart of Christ than to have this attitude. And Jesus is the one who has just said, don't cut any of the weeds down until the harvest. Give them as much time as possible. And likewise, we can't have an apathetic attitude that says, eh, whatever. The picture is of yeast being mixed and kneaded and turned and tossed into there. And unless we are consciously making ourselves available to us, to to God in this way, then we are missing the point here. The point is not that a mustard seed grows from seed to plant alone, but that birds can come and nest there and be blessed as well. It's hid in. And so it comes to this conclusion that I have been constantly drawn back to time and time again that the gospel of Jesus is largely about presence. It is largely about presence. And if we are willing to constantly be available to God, when Isaiah responds to the call of God, he says, here I am, present. And while being constantly available to the call of God, being cognitively aware of the world around us. Present. And committed to being present for the long haul. I would love a parable, quite frankly, that said, uh, Jesus sprinkled, the kingdom of God is like a woman who sprinkled magic dust on the dough and it became a loaf of bread, right? I always see these commercials on TV one o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep about these weight loss things where you just sprinkle flakes on top of your food and you're going to lose 70 pounds. And I'm thinking, doesn't compute, right? This doesn't make sense. And yet we treat the gospel in that way. And we get annoyed and irritated and impatient when things... And yet the call of the kingdom has always been about presence. Will you be consistent in your love for Christ? Will you be consistent in your pursuit of others? Will you be consistent in your call to mission and therefore be present, present, and present? Because God is the God who takes the improbable and creates the undeniable. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like a woman who took leaven and hid it in 60 pounds of dough. And then it was leavened. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for 
your clarion example of love and service, of your kingdom, the way that you've pursued us. And thank you that you've given us this great privilege of being part of the ever-growing kingdom of God. We love you. Amen.